I tried, to, I tried to flip switches on my own. I learned my lesson. I shouldn't do that anymore. As we gather back together, let's, um, let's go to God in prayer and, and bring our needs before him. Uh, Father, we do thank you that you are a good and loving God who cares for his children, provides for his children, who knows how to give good gifts to his children so that when we ask for things that we need, you do not re respond with spite and, and evil, but you respond, respond from the goodness of your good heart. And so, Father, with, with confidence, we can bring our needs before you. This morning, God, we lift up Bhutan, and particularly, we lift up our brothers and sisters in Bhutan, and in the midst of their persecution, in the midst of a, a government that will deny them citizenship, deny them their uh, public benefits for the sake of converting to the God who created them. We pray that they would be sustained in their worship and their love for one another and in their love for Jesus Christ. That though they must face immense pressures to renounce that faith, that you would make them endure, knowing that you indeed hold them fast. Father, we pray that they would be bold even despite the threats that they face, that they would share the good news about Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, for the ministry of Indian and Nepalese Christians who are selflessly making the gospel known in Bhutan. And we pray that the ministry of the word would be fruitful and faithful and lift up a great harvest of souls to their Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray for the translation of the Bible that still needs to continue in so many languages in Bhutan, that you would provide willing and able workers so that the word of God may be read in the native languages of so many residents there. And would you raise up workers in Bhutan, and in India, in Nepal, maybe even from here to preach the gospel to such faraway lands. Father, we pray here locally for those workers in, in Lordstown and, and other uh, factories connected to General Motors who are losing their jobs, who are being permanently laid off, maybe who've worked there for years or decades and, and don't really have a transferable skill set, the economy is changing. We know these things happen, and yet it doesn't make things easy for them. We pray, God, that during this season of transition, of pain, of frustration, and fear, that those workers would find a peace that passes understanding, and that they would find a, a trust in a Savior who knows how to provide and who is good to his children and gives them something greater than the temporary benefits of this world. We pray, Father, here in Cleveland for our schools and for our teachers who are working faithfully as they know how to educate a, a next generation of students, and we know that the it's challenging. We know that it can be frustrating at times, whether they are in public schools or whether they are in charter schools or whether they are in private schools. And yet we know that the health and vitality of our city is riding so much on their work. Sustain them in that good work. And Father, we pray for the children of this city that in addition to knowing their math, and knowing their sciences, and, and knowing their history, that there would also be an eruption of learning of the good news of Jesus. And so to that end, may we be faithful to rear the few children that we have in our midst and the children that are coming, and may we be faithful to our neighbors with children and our co-workers with children, that we might set an example and be a light and a witness to them. We pray these things in Christ's name.
Amen. Uh, before I get going, just a, a couple things that um, no, nobody's fault, but just so you know, um, with the new Sunday School course that's starting tomorrow, there are some books that correspond with it. They aren't required, but uh, if you want, you can grab a book off the, the bookstall over there that uh, goes with it. There's also resources available online, and, uh, and if you, Brian would like you to look ahead and, and read the, first, the introduction and, and read the first question, which is available online too. There's an app, there's a book, but that's available to you, so please check that out. And then just a reminder on the sermon schedule, we are still operating kind of a week ahead. We're going to get that corrected here soon, but we are working a week ahead on the sermon schedule. And with that in mind, we are in Luke 4 this morning and, and into, verse, or into chapter 5. So if you would turn with me in your Bible, if you need a Bible, just throw your hand in the air. Someone will bring one to you. Otherwise, do what you do to get to Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. And if you do have a Bible that looks like this, I don't always use one of these Bibles, but since I do, I can tell you that we're starting on page 558. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, but in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. Passing through their midst, he went away. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who, had any, who were sick and various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. 
And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Well, we continue in this series on the, the book of Luke, um, which will go at least to the spring. We'll see. Um, I think it's probably going to go all year. And, and we come to a, a passage, that, you know, in our Bibles it's marked as like you know, seven different passages, but, but Luke's account kind of runs together. And, and we have this interesting story, a lot of little famous stories that we probably know, we probably remember, we probably recognize, but what do they have to do with each other? How do they connect? What do they, they mean? In the past few weeks, we've looked at the, the announcement of Jesus' birth and the announcement of John the Baptist's birth. We saw their births. We saw the arrival of John the Baptist as a prophet and, and Jesus being baptized by him. And here we have the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, at least as it's recorded by Luke. This isn't the first episode in his ministry. We know that from what Luke says. And what we have here is an announcement of what Jesus' mission is. And it's a mission, though, that gets unpacked over three different destinations, three different locations. And so we're going to look at that, and then then we'll kind of see how this this fits together. Luke starts his account of Jesus' public ministry by seeing Jesus coming into Galilee, and Luke stresses that he comes in the power of the Spirit. Now, we're prepared for that if we've been following along. He's led by the Spirit in the wilderness— And he was full of the Spirit there. Uh, The Spirit comes upon Jesus at his baptism. But what does that look like? And what does that mean to be in the power of the Spirit? Well, Luke says that he taught in their synagogues. And, And one thing we see at every single point in this narrative is Jesus teaching. Everywhere he goes, he teaches. This teaching uh, this teaching permeates the entire section that we're looking at this morning. And throughout the New Testament, the power of God, the power of the Spirit, is connected with the proclamation of God's Word. Now, things begin positively. Reports have gone out about him, and people are saying good things about him. It says they're glorifying him, which is a word that's really only proper about God. Did the people understand what they were doing? Did they understand what they were saying? It's hard to know, but, but Luke thinks that the reaction is appropriate, whether it was conscious or not. So he records it for us. And then we have Jesus in Nazareth. So this is the first of the three locations. Jesus comes to Nazareth, his hometown, where he was brought up, where he was raised. It was one of those towns of Galilee, and, and he enters the synagogue on the Sabbath, a Saturday. And we know that in the first century, the Jews uh, would invariably have read from the law, that, that means the first five books of the Bible, the, the Old Testament, the books of Moses. They would have read those during their meeting. We don't know how common it was that they would also read from the prophets, but it seems like they did at least occasionally, and that's what happens here. Jesus gets permission to read from the prophets and apparently to offer some commentary or maybe just a brief sermon. 
And so he asks for the scroll of Isaiah, and he reads a passage. Uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the passage that Jesus reads is from Isaiah chapter 61, mostly. And he borrows a single line from chapter 58. Now, Isaiah 61 is a prophecy about the Messiah. The Messiah is the Christ. That's the Greek translation, or the anointed one, if we were to translate it into English. It's God's chosen king who was prophesied to to rule justly, to set the world in right order. On the other hand, Isaiah 58 is a message from God about true righteousness, as opposed to fake righteousness. It's an attack on what Jesus would often call hypocrisy. The line that Jesus borrows from that chapter is the second to last line, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And that portion of Isaiah 58 is speaking about the kind of righteousness that God is looking for. So Jesus returns his scroll, and he takes his seat, which that's the posture of a first century rabbi. The rabbi would sit and teach while the congregation stood. We could try that if you like, Um, but I'm planning to go for a while, so maybe we'll do it modern way. And as Jesus begins to preach his message, Luke only records what are probably the very first words of Jesus' sermon, or at least the thesis statement, the, the main argument that he's trying to make. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In saying this, Jesus is pointing to his own identity as God's chosen king, the Messiah, but he's also identifying himself with Isaiah 58, as the one who keeps true and genuine righteousness, not fake righteousness. He lives the kind of life that God desires from all of us. He is the anointed one, and he is the righteous one. And that leads to a mixed reaction from the crowd. On one hand, Luke can write, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words coming from his mouth. And on the other hand, they also say, isn't this Joseph's son? Positively, they can't deny that Jesus' message is powerful and it's captivating, but negatively, they couldn't reconcile that message with their familiarity with Jesus as the son of Joseph, just a son of a carpenter, a tradesman. In English, we might say familiarity breeds contempt. And so it's no wonder that we idolize celebrities as long as we don't actually meet them, as long as they stay at a distance, they, they look great, they seem like they've got their lives together, they seem like they do everything well and they're perfect. And I think also we, we tend to have a longing for things that are new or things that are fresh. We say the grass is always greener on the other side because the things that we haven't inspected too closely look better, don't they? We haven't seen the warts yet. But there's also this this nagging sense we have when we can't allow ourselves to have joy for someone who rises from their circumstances. Have you ever felt that? So these Jews of Nazareth couldn't help but remember little Jesus who grew up the son of a poor tradesman. He was probably a rather nobody. And sure, most of them were probably poor tradesmen Two, the economic situation of the time was such that there really was no middle class to speak of. You were poor, really poor, or you were part of the very limited aristocracy. Most of the people live very, very few live better than day to day. And so maybe they had what the Irish call begrudgery, a contempt for seeing one of their peers rise above them. And Jesus suggests that they would complain to him, Physician, heal yourself. What we heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And the meaning seems to be that the hometown folk have heard that he's been doing some great miracles and great signs in places like Capernaum and maybe elsewhere. And there's a certain scorn here. 
Sure, you could do all these great things in other towns, but what have you done here at home? What, you, you can do all these great deeds for people far away, but you can't do great deeds here for the people you grew up with. Heal yourself. Heal your own town. Jesus' words have been gracious. Maybe more accurately, Jesus spoke to them words of grace. He declared to them the grace of God that he himself was bringing. And rather than accept it with joy, the crowd was opposing it with scorn. Jesus sees a parallel to how some of the prophets of the Old Testament worked. And he mentions two very important, two very famous stories. One of them from the life of Elijah the prophet, one from the life of the prophet Elisha. Both of them are stories where these Jewish prophets, these Israelite prophets, did tremendous miracles on the benefit, to benefit a Gentile and non-Jew. Even though there were plenty of needy people in Israel at the time, these good deeds were done on the behalf of non-Israelites. Why? Well, if you read the story of the widow of Zarephath, and if you read the story of Naaman, you'll read about Gentiles who came to have faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, during a time of rampant unbelief in Israel. So the people of God, the Jews, were not believing in the God who had called them. And these lowly Gentiles, who in theory had no part in God's people, came to have true faith. And their faith was rewarded. Reminding the Jews of those two stories kind of cut two different ways. First, it suggested that the signs and miracles were for those who believe, or who would believe, not for the stubborn and hard-hearted. And that implied that his hometown was rather empty of faith. Second, it suggested another important theme, that God's salvation would go beyond any man-made distinctions of geography or ethnicity, It was for everyone. And the crowd didn't take too kindly to that suggestion. So they make a move to throw him from a cliff. And, you know, Jewish law prohibited mod justice. And Jewish law would have prohibited this kind of work being done on a Sabbath. But that kind of underscores the character of these Nazarenes, these these men and women of Nazareth. They don't believe. But their attack is, is foiled by Jesus' apparent ability to simply move right along. So Nazareth is a place where he announces his messianic identity, but he's opposed on the basis of that identity. He didn't have, he wasn't the kind of Messiah they were looking for. We might wonder, though, what what kind of Messiah was Jesus announcing himself to be when Jesus said he was preaching good news to the poor and setting the liberty setting at liberty those who are oppressed, what is he talking about? Well, rather than tell us directly, Luke paints the picture for us, even as Jesus paints the picture by the way he conducts his ministry. And so this is kind of unpacked in the next couple locations. So Jesus makes his way to the second location that we have here, Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is a fishing town on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee, which, despite its name, is a large freshwater lake. And and the thing that we'll notice is that spirit-empowered Jesus is doing spirit-empowered things. Namely, he's preaching God's word. He's teaching in the synagogue again, and here the people are impressed. But in this case, it's unqualified. Rather than focusing on his words, they're focused on the substance behind the words, Jesus has authority. And that means implicitly that they felt compelled to follow his words, to heed his words. But just like Nazareth, Jesus does face some opposition in Capernaum. Only here it comes in a different form. It says, and in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So Jesus preaches, And again, Jesus is opposed. And again, we have a confrontation, but this one ends a little differently because here the confrontation is with a demon. 
And Jesus commands the demon to be silent and with a word casts it out and the demon obeys. The response to this is a heightened level of amazement. And it's a message that is accompanied by power and Jesus' fame spreads. And he goes from the synagogue to the house of Simon, also known as Peter. And his mother-in-law is ill. And without incident, Jesus heals her and she begins to serve the gathering. And at the end of the day, I don't know if it was just word spreading or the result of family business on the day off being done. But at the end of the day, all the sick and all the demon afflicted in the area are being brought to Jesus and they're being healed of all these things. And so he heads to a desolate place, the wilderness probably northwest of the Sea of Galilee. And the people find him there too. And he leaves them with the instruction that he's got to keep preaching, that that's what he's been called to do. And this takes Jesus to another lakeside location. The Sea of Galilee was sometimes called the Lake of Gennesaret. And once again, we have him teaching, more like Capernaum than Nazareth. The people seem to be hungry to hear his message, so much so that he enters a boat. The idea is that he can put some distance between him and the shore, and the crowds can gather along the beach, and a larger number of people can see him and hear him and be exposed to the teaching. And so standing on the boat, he's, he's preaching a message to them. And when he's done, he's apparently in Simon's boat, or one of the boats owned by Simon's little tiny fishing company. He tells Simon an unusual command. He says, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now, I enjoy fishing. I'm not much of a fisherman, but I, I do enjoy it. And I know that you generally want to fish during the cool part of the day or, or even at night when you can. Fish are more accessible at night. They're, they swim closer to the surface. They, they're not afraid of getting a little bit warm. In the daylight, they're going to escape the light where they're a little bit more visible to predators, where they might overheat, and so they go down to the cool places and the deep places, and it's harder to catch them. Simon, a professional fisherman by trade, knows this, and he's a little bit flummoxed. He says, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But he acquiesced. Okay. I think you're crazy, but if you tell me to do it, Jesus, I'll do it. So they head out. And the catch they haul into the nets is so large, it's threatening to rip the nets. And they have to call their partners over in another boat to successfully bring in the catch. And even then, the amount of fish is so large, the boats are close to sinking. And this elicits what might strike you as an unusual response. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Not the reaction you probably expected, right? You... You, you think maybe he'd just be kind of overwhelmed, overjoyed. He hadn't caught anything all night long. That means no money today. Um, he's a, probably living a, a more or less day-by-day -day existence. Now he's got a ton of fish. He's going to have a huge sale. He's going to make literally boatloads of money. He, maybe he can feed the family for the week this time. He, you think he's excited. You think he's thrilled. You think he's amazed at what he, what he just saw. But his reaction is terror. And begging Jesus to get out. Because he's a sinful man. Let me suggest that I think Peter's reaction is really what ties all these little vignettes, all these little locations, Nazareth, Capernaum, and now Gennesaret together. If we go back to Jesus' reading of Isaiah... We might have a sense of where this is going. Jesus says he came to preach good news to the poor, but what is the good news, and, and, and who are the poor? He, he says he's going to liberate the oppressed and the captives, but what are they oppressed by, and to whom are they held captive? And What does that have to do with the blind recovering their sight? Perhaps the Jews in Nazareth were expecting the Messiah to end their captivity to Rome, to liberate them from the tyranny of a foreign empire. Or, or perhaps we should read Isaiah with postmodern ears. Jesus was coming to be the justice bringer and, and to show the world the right way to treat other human beings. 
Well, in a way, Jesus did both, but not in a way that would have satisfied a Nazarene Jew or a social justice warrior. First, we know that Jesus saw that his mission was carried out primarily by preaching. Every episode here is begun with the word of God. And Jesus says in no uncertain terms, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. So Jesus' purpose was to preach. And if he was to preach good news to the poor, well, we have an idea now what the good news is. It's the good news of the kingdom of God. That is, the message about God's reign. His kingdom is now being exercised through his chosen king, Jesus. Jesus is beginning to stretch out his arm of power and exercise rule. The poor then, the poor must somehow be connected to these other towns. We'll get to that. And second, though, if you look back to Jesus' message, wherever Jesus goes, he is meeting the oppressed. First, we see him meeting a man who is oppressed by a demon. He sets the man free. Then he meets a woman oppressed by disease, and he sets the woman free. And then he comes to Peter, but Peter's reaction is different. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Peter sees a miraculous catch of fish. A professional, trained fisherman. He is staring at something he has never seen before, and he knows that he is in the presence of something that is dangerous. He sees for himself what the demon knew. This was the Holy One of God. And being in the presence of true holiness is not a blissful, wonderful experience for Peter. Let me suggest that the man with the demon and Peter's mother-in-law were oppressed. But Peter was the one who was blind. He didn't see Jesus for who he was. And then in a moment, the truth becomes scaringly real. And standing before holiness, Peter realizes he was a sinner and not not a little sinner. His reaction actually is similar to the prophet Isaiah's. In the early part of the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, Isaiah has a vision And in his vision, he sees the throne room of God. And when he sees the glory of God and all of God's holiness and splendor, Isaiah cries out, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Peter was oppressed also. He was oppressed by sin. Of course, the The demon-possessed man, Peter's mother-in-law, were also oppressed because of sin. If if there had been no sin in the world, if the man's heart had not been inclined toward evil, he would not have been possessed in the first place. If there was no evil in the world, Simon's mother-in-law would never have fallen ill. Her illness was proof that sin was alive and well in the world. But God's word, it teaches us that all of creation is broken because of sin. And that means that disease and death and and, and things not working the way they're supposed to work, all of this has spread to all of us. Our illnesses, whether it's a, a common cold or if it's cancer, they're a reminder to us that not everything is right in this world. And in fact, all is not right in our hearts. And so the oppression that Jesus' mission was concerned with was primarily a spiritual oppression. Sure, it has some physical ramifications. Like this man probably didn't have a lot of control over his life when he's oppressed by a demon. And Simon's mother-in-law is confined to a bed because of her illness. But it's at its heart a spiritual oppression. Peter recognizes that. His eyes are opened. 
spiritually speaking. And he says, I'm a sinful man. Jesus' words to Simon Peter are simple. Do not be afraid. And those are perhaps the most important words that Peter could have heard because they crystallize for us Jesus' mission. If this section of Scripture announces Jesus' mission, then here's what it is. Jesus was on a rescue mission. Jesus was on a rescue mission. You might be like, well, what are you saying, Pastor Chris? You got rescue mission from do not be afraid. Bear with me a second. Peter is in the presence of a holy God. The miracle on the lake, it opens up his, his dull and blind eyes to who and what he is really dealing with, and he's scared. He's terrified. The last words of Isaiah that Jesus had read in that synagogue in Nazareth were to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That sounds like good news, doesn't it? But if you read Isaiah 61, you'll see that Jesus stopped quoting Isaiah at a very unusual place. If you flip over to Isaiah 61, you'll see that the full quotation that Jesus could have cited is to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor favor, and the day of vengeance of our God. You see, the promise that was foretold by Isaiah was good news for the righteous, but very bad news, very bad news for sinners. For the righteous, it would be a year of the Lord's favor. But for sinners, those who had done things that God hated and and thought things that God hated and said things that God hated, for them it would be very, very bad news. And so here's Peter. He's in the presence of a holy God. A God who has promised to destroy the wicked. And he's very much aware of his own wickedness. God says to him, do not be afraid. Jesus wasn't turning his back on the promise of God's vengeance. This isn't a, there's an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. That's nonsense. But Jesus said, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And when he says that, what he's saying is that the promise of the Lord's favor is here today. Now, there will be a day of vengeance, but that day is not today. Today is the year of the Lord's favor. Favor means acceptable, accepted. And Peter, the sinner, this wicked man, found himself accepted by God, by Jesus. Today is a day of salvation not a day of judgment. Peter deserves judgment, and in this moment, he recognizes that he deserves judgment. He's oppressed by sin, but that's the good news. Jesus has come to proclaim liberty for those who are captive to sin. The word translated liberty is more frequently translated forgiveness. The sense is basically the same, though. It's a freedom from associated guilt. When you forgive someone, you free them from the guilt that they have in connection with actions that are committed against you, right? When you forgive somebody, it's not just words, I forgive you. When you forgive someone, if you truly forgive them, you let go of the hostility and the enmity. Because if they've done wrong by you, right, they, they owe you something. They owe to make it right with you somehow. And so when you forgive them, you let go of that gap between you and them. You let go of that debt between you and them. And you release them from the guilt. And you're saying, we are good. We're good. Right? And so forgiveness is a sort of liberty. It's a liberty from guilt. So the the bad news then is you, me, like the demoniac, like the mother-in-law, like Simon Peter, are guilty in connection with acts you've committed against God. 
And, and that's an eternal guilt in, in so much as God has, he's infinitely greater than any human you might sin against. You can lie to your mom, but that's bad. If you lie to the FBI, that's worse. But if you lie to God, we're talking about infinite degrees of guilt. And Jesus is the Holy One of God. He's the righteous king. And he is a righteous king who will bring vengeance against those who have committed crimes against God. And that, well, that would be everyone. And so Peter is rightfully terrified. He feels exposed. His guilt is on the surface. He feels the weight of his wrong. It's, it's like when you feel nothing. You feel nothing driving 50 miles an hour down Euclid Avenue, right? Or down Prospect. And then there's lights in your rearview mirror and you hear the siren and suddenly your heart sinks and you become acutely aware of your guilt. And, and not, just, not just the 50 miles an hour, you, you suddenly realize your taillight's out and you, you suddenly remember your seatbelt's not on and all of the weight of your guilt starts coming upon you, right? But what Peter is feeling is so much greater and so much worse. But oh, if you could just make those lights in the rearview mirror disappear. If maybe, just maybe, you pull over and he drives past you because it's somebody in front of you, right? Just maybe. There's a day of vengeance coming. But that day is not today. Today, Jesus is on a rescue mission. He's proclaiming good news that guilty people can go free and that sinners can be forgiven. Why? How? Because he took our place. Jesus is the righteous one. In the the spirit of Isaiah 58, he has lived a life before the Father that is flawless. That's without sin, so no charge can be brought against him. We are not like him. We are like those God rails against in Isaiah 58, whose best attempts at religion and faithfulness is is faulty and hypocritical. We fall short. But Jesus is the righteous one who went where we couldn't go who lived as we couldn't and don't live. And though we deserve to die for our sins, and so death has come into the world, and we know that it's the course of all of us that we die, Jesus, who by no rights should die, voluntarily went to die on behalf of sinners so that those who place their faith and trust in him and turn from their sins can be forgiven. That his righteousness is counted on your account. Because on that day of judgment, we will be like Peter, one way or another. We will go before God and and, and we will feel the weight of our sinfulness exposed before us and we will be guilty. There is no way out of that on our own, except if on the day that you go before judgment and the records are opened on your account and written there on the pages is the balance statement of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, then that's going to be a different story. Today, Jesus is on a rescue mission. It's a rescue mission today because there will be, there there is a need to rescue us. There is a danger coming from which we need to be spared. And if we don't receive that rescue, that salvation, we will fall victim to the judgment. Victim is not really the right word when you deserve it. But there's more to that story. The response. If, you, if you've been with us, we looked at the message of John the Baptist. And John was, was telling the Jews 
to repent of their sins, to prepare for the coming of Jesus. And John said, it's not, it's not enough to simply say, I repent. I'm sorry, God. And go through a little ritual, sacri- a ritual baptism in the, in the river Jordan. That, that's not enough. John says, if you're really repentant, and, and I hope that you're really repentant, he says, you will bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And what he meant by that is that repentant people's lives are changed and there are good things that come out of the lives of repentant people. They don't continue to live the same way as before. And that's what we see in this passage. We see it two places. Simon's mother-in-law. Freed from her oppression, what does she do? She begins to serve Jesus. But then we also see it in Simon Peter with a little bit more depth. Jesus says to Simon Peter, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. You see, Jesus is on a rescue mission, but he's enlisting others into his rescue mission. Which makes sense. If you imagine that you were on a boat that was sinking and there were people who were helping to rescue people, get off the boat and and save them. And let's say you successfully got off the boat and you're in a lifeboat and you see people paddling, swimming, doing everything they desperately can to make it to safety, to make it to one of these lifeboats, wouldn't it be right? Wouldn't it be appropriate? Wouldn't it be the only decent thing that as someone who has made it safely to one of these lifeboats now, what else would you do except reach out your hand, extend your hand to try to bring someone else on board? And so this good news that Jesus proclaims it also bears with it a responsibility. That Peter is going to go from being a person who catches fish for a living to being a person who, whether he catches fish or not, is going to be engaged in the same rescue operation as his Lord. And it says here that when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So the proper response to having received the rescue of Jesus' mission is leaving everything, following him, and joining the mission. Leaving everything, following him, and joining the mission. That is what the fruit of repentance looks like. That is what a repentant lifestyle looks like. Is Peter perfect? No. In fact, we'll see over and over again, Peter is, is, is frail and weak, kind of like me, kind of like you. But the difference is, is that he's been rescued. Christ's righteousness has been written onto his accounts so that when his accounts would come up short and empty, he will never overdraft because Jesus' righteousness is credited to him. And so we're called into the game as well. So we see the two different responses. We can, we can despise Jesus. We can, be, we can scorn Jesus and his message like those in Nazareth did. Or we can respond to Jesus as Peter did. And that's really the, the dividing line. Jesus' mission is to rescue sinners from the consequences of their sin, to free them from the oppression of their sin, and to give them a new course in this life. And we will either fall into the camp of the Nazarenes, rejecting that message with hostility, or we fall into the camp of those who follow. There really is no middle ground. And that means that if we are not following like Peter, then it means that we are hostile to the message of Jesus.
So, if you've not yet known this Jesus, if you've not yet known this salvation, if you've not yet known this freedom that he's offering you from the guilt that you have before God, know that it's available today and that today is a day of salvation. Today is the year of the Lord's favor. And he's calling you to give you a mission. He's calling you to give you a cause and a purpose and a significance that has eternal weight and value. But make no mistake that today is a day of the Lord's favor because there will be a day of vengeance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we are grateful that you sent your son to rescue, that you sent your son to save. Though we are unworthy, though we have trespassed, though we have sinned, though we have harbored evil thoughts in our hearts, though we have muttered evil words under our breath, God, but who are we kidding? We know that we have committed evil actions with our hands and with our feet. We are not clean, not a one of us. And yet you halted your vengeance. You pressed pause on your vengeance to give us a day of salvation. And we are eternally grateful for that. Thank you, Father. We know that there are those who have not received this salvation that you offer, have not turned to your Son in faith and repentance, and so are still in their sins. And like Peter, if they recognize it, have good reason to be terrified. And we pray, Father, that they would turn in faith and repentance even today. Lest the day of your favor become a day of vengeance. Father, for us who have received this grace or have convinced ourselves that we have received this grace. Forgive us for the times in which we have clung to the things of this world and things of this life and not like Peter left everything. We have still conducted our lives as if the little trinkets of this world matter. May we follow hard after you. Make us into catchers of men, fishers of men. Even as we have received so great a salvation, may we not grow slack in extending our arms, so to speak, to rescue those who are perishing. Empower us by your Spirit so that like our Lord, we can preach the message of salvation. And the good news will be received by many. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you are able, we invite you to stand to continue worshiping with us in song.